Uh, as Kez said, this morning's Bible reading is taken from Acts chapter 10. You can follow along on the screen uh, in your leaflets or in the Blue Church Bibles. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to him, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, 
I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in, and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. In looking at... uh this part of the Bible, I found myself going back to a book uh, that I read recently about mission history in Australia, uh, 90 years of it with Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. Uh, That book was called We Should Have Done More. It's a great book to read. And in it, it explains how in 1903, the African and Cold Storage Company were carving out a huge pastoral empire around the Roper River area in uh, Northern Territory. The company was determined to have that area. And so what they did was they, uh, their goal was to exterminate the Aboriginal people in that area so that they could uh, farm it properly. And uh, I have mistakenly thought that this only happened in Tasmania. But the reality is it would have happened all over Australia, except for certain things happening. Um, I want you to listen to this speech that was given by the Bishop of North Queensland at the equivalent of the CMS, the Church Missionary Society Conference, in Melbourne, and it's 1906, three years after the African Cold Storage Company uh, had arrived in the Northern Territory. This is what he says. We have an airy way of speaking about Australia being a white man's country, but Australia, first of all, was the black man's country. And I've never heard that a black man invited us to take his property away from him. 
A previous conference speaker has said the British were put by God in Australia to preach the gospel to the heathen. I've never heard a more complete condemnation of the stewardship of the Australian people. We've developed the country, we've civilised it, but we very, have certainly done very little to preach the gospel to the people we have dispossessed. The blacks have been shot, poisoned, and now they're left to kill themselves with white vices. Very few have received at our hands either justice or consideration. It's over a hundred years ago. How is it that some person can be so disentangled from their culture and their context that they can see with absolute clarity what has taken the rest of us a hundred years to come to grips with to our shame? You see... Prejudice doesn't really bother us until we start to get close to the people who are being distanced. Now, listen to this diary reflection from this man, Rex Joint. He was one of the first missionaries who went up to the Roper River. And this is his reflections. He says, Aborigines are treated worse than animals and sometimes even referred to as black animals or terms even worse. In years gone by, the natives have been shot down like game and hundreds killed in a spirit of revenge. I have met men that boast of shooting the poor, unprotected black just for fun. Clearly, when Christians in Melbourne heard about the atrocities going on in remote parts of Australia, they initiated the Roper River Mission. And you can go on and read about it. It's fascinating. It's not all pure as the driven snow. There are points where they have their cultural blind spots as well. But the fact that they started it and their primary purpose was we don't want to see these people exterminated is profound. Prejudice is pretty ugly and brutal. What is it? It, At the end of the day, it's essentially a rejection. A rejection that's taking place an opportunity is being withdrawn, relationship is being severed, and the criteria for all that is based on something really, really extraneous like skin colour, behaviour, sex, nationality, job or schooling. Why do some people shut the door on other people like this? Well, the Bible's answer to that would be it's a manifestation of, a sinful, of sinful people operating with each other in a world particularly as they come up against a holy God. How is that? Well, if you can't find approval before a holy God, if that's too hard for you, then you'll go and find your own approval in life. You'll make your own approval before other people. And the easiest way to lift yourself up is by putting other people down. It starts in the school ground. So we keep others pushed down, and that means that we get lifted up. Few groups were more deserving of the prejudice label, I think, than the first century Palestinian Jews. Have a look in Acts chapter 10, verse 28 there, at Peter's comment. He says, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Now, what had become as a concern to be distinctively God's people the holy nation uh, of the Jews and mirroring that God that they worshipped had turned into a racially proud nation that despised outsiders. 
and develop ways to keep them at a distance. You know, the Jews were not allowed to contact Gentiles. I was talking to someone after the earlier service who said in their business dealings, they certainly did feel that distance from some of the older Jewish people in the um, furnishing game that they were in. You know, sort of a little bit of a latent uh, thing that was still there. Jews were not allowed to have contact with Gentiles and the common teaching of the time that was that the Gentiles, as anyone who wasn't a Jew, was there, to, created by God, to fuel the fires of hell. Now, on top of this, Cornelius is not just any old Gentile that Peter's going to go to. He's, the, he's a leader in the occupying forces, a brutal regime that has taken over his country, the Romans. So, here's the original charter to the Jews. Uh, you'll find it in Genesis 12. Let me uh, read it to you. I will make you into a great nation... And I will bless you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So my question to you is, how do you get so far away from that charter? How do you get so far away from that charter? The answer is, you've twisted a doctrine, a doctrine of grace into a doctrine of favoritism. That's how you do it. This is the environment into which Peter is raised as a boy, and grows up as a man. And yet, what's the mission mandate given to the disciples at the beginning of Acts, which sounds awfully similar to the charter in Genesis 12? It is this, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, can you begin to see the hurdle that's ahead? Now, how in the world are the Jews who don't mix with anybody else going to spread their message to anyone outside of themselves? How is it going to get to the uttermost parts of the earth with this sort of thinking? Without the events of Acts 10, the gospel would have stalled in Jerusalem. None of us would be here today. Um, the recurring problem for Christians is the same thing, actually. Anytime we really take missions seriously, we find ourselves getting into trouble because we're dealing with people who haven't yet been cleansed. Since having greater involvement with not yet Christians in the workplace, I, I get to bring them and introduce them to church culture eventually, and it's eye-opening. This is not a criticism of any one particular church, all right? But sitting next to somebody who doesn't normally go to church is an eye-opening experience because you see everything completely differently. So at one particular service that I took somebody to, um, the person who was emceeing it got up and they said, um, well, it's so great to have visitors with us today. We're so pleased that you're here to explore the gospel with us. And at the end of the service, that person said to me, that was so presumptuous. I said, oh, why? He said, because I don't even know my reasons for being here today. I'm here because I'm your friend. And you do this, so I thought I'd come see what you do. thought, wow, that's instructive, isn't it? Another person who uh, I remember trying to come to church was a civic figure. What that means is they're like a shift worker. It was extremely difficult for them to work out how to become involved in a church that was geared to giving up half your weekend, 
which is the very time when this person cuts ribbons and turns up at everything that's opening in the community. West Care Mission in the CBD do a fantastic job, I don't know whether you know, of um, feeding the needy and the homeless. But their dilemma, their dilemma is it's not finding enough of volunteers to help them serve out the meals. Their dilemma is finding enough Christians who will help them serve out the meals. Because they don't want to just serve meals, they want actually people to be incorporated and find out about who Jesus is eventually. How will those people be incorporated into the church unless people befriend them who are Christians? See, that's the essential dilemma of the mission of the church. We read it in Acts 10 here, but it's common nowadays for us. In his book, What's Best Next, Matt Perman summarises the dilemma created by Christians uh, trying to do mission. It's this picture here. So he says, Sometimes Christians have reduced morality to an avoidance ethic. Instead of seeing the Christian life as being proactive and abundant in doing good, it essentially shrinks to seeing it as avoiding the bad. Discipleship becomes the art of disinfecting Christians from their um, journeys into the world. And it avoids them having real engagement in the world. Frankly, he says, who gets excited about a life holed up in a Christian bunker, allegedly safe from the world? So how does God solve this dilemma in Acts chapter 10 of getting his people out to mission? Well, he provides two unsettling visions. And you see on the map there where these visions occur, one to a Gentile, the other to a Jew, and they're 51 kilometres apart. Look at, uh, with me at uh, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 10. Have a look, and you can see here Cornelius is a centurion. He's a commander of 100 Roman soldiers. He's a devout God-fearing man, it says here in these verses, it says, along with the rest of his family, he gives generously to those in need. He prays to God regularly. Clearly, he's in God's good books. Um, and according to verse 4, as a sign of a sincere heart search for God, God sends him this angel, this vision, uh, to tell him how to find an evangelist to tell him about Jesus. Now, here's the question to think about. Why didn't the angel preach to him about Jesus? Interesting, interesting. God gives this Gentile man a vision that compels him to go and find a Jew who normally wouldn't step inside his house to preach to him about Jesus. What's Peter's vision? Uh, verses 10 to 29. Have a look at that. Uh, Cornelius uh, sends off this Search party, Peter's there on his rooftop praying. He's hungry and God dishes up a vision to him at midday and the vision is calculated to disgust him. It involves sending down a large seat from heaven with every type of animal that a good Jew would never have touched with a barge pole. And look at Peter's protest when God tells him to kill and eat the things on the sheep. Verse 14, surely not I, Lord... I've never eaten anything unclean or impure in my life. So a good friend of mine went on a mission trip to the Philippines and he said um, one, of the most, uh, one of the most disturbing things that happened for him while he was away was uh, uh, there were these street vendors who sold eggs. And uh, he said 
The problem with the eggs was that they were fertilised. Um, and the problem was, was that as a visitor, even the poorest of people that he was with would give whatever money they could to buy these eggs so that he could have one and then he'd have to eat it um, in their presence. And the thing was, the egg got more expensive as it got closer to hatching. So the greater the honour, the more close the egg was to being a chicken. And he said he almost threw up as he crunched through the bones of the hatchling, the near hatchling, and said, thank you so much for your <laughs> kindness to me today. How could God ask such a putrid thing to be done. That's what Peter's thinking when he sees this vision coming down from heaven. How could God ask him to do something like this? While Peter is trying to make sense of the vision, Cornelius's men arrive at the door, they knock, and then in verse 20, you see him struggling with every Jewish fibre within him of, I, I can't let these people over the threshold. <laughs> I can't. But he's had the vision, so he lets them in, and as soon as I come over the doorway, um, uh, he's, he, he hears the story of Cornelius and then uh, decides the next day that he will go with these guests, these house guests, back to um, meet Cornelius. Now, this is a really good story because you're thinking by this point, what's going to happen when these two guys meet? You know, the world of Cornelius and the world of Peter colliding together. What is this going to look like? Well, then in verse 24, you can see it. The following day, he arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius is expecting him. No doubt, I guess he was sort of changing, you know, shifting from foot to foot, thinking this is a big moment. Um, I've been asked to meet this man. He's come finally. And as soon as Peter comes through the door, Cornelius bows down in reverence. Now, immediately, Peter picks him up on it. In verse 26, he says, Get up. I'm just a man. And Cornelius may be a God-fearer, but he's elevated Peter and put him on a pedestal. And Peter corrects that vision of humanity, that elevated view of seeing him, another human being, as divine, as if he were God. But that's not the only thing that's transformed here of humanity, because Peter also, after hearing the story of Cornelius' vision and joining the dots together, has his own epiphany. He says in verse 34, I now realise that God does not show favouritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So Peter learns the opposite lesson to what Cornelius is learning. He learns not to treat people as dogs. He learns not to denigrate people. And as fallen creatures, we have a great propensity to one or the other attitude, I think. And these views of humanity... Treating people and denigrating them, elevating them up far, much, far more than they should be. Those two views of humanity are constantly colliding, aren't they? In our families and our workplaces, in the towns and the cities we inhabit. And it brings so much grief, prejudice and injustice. So God must radically transform these two men if... The messenger is able to speak to the hearer. So Peter connects the vision uh, to his context. And he says, uh, he says 
he can see that God has been at work in Cornelius long before he arrived. That's another interesting thing. I think sometimes as Christians we walk into a place and uh, you know, someone says to us, oh, I've been wondering about God, and we think, wow, wow, this is it. You know, It's my great opportunity. God's arrived, I've come into the room. That's not how Peter saw it. Peter knew that God was doing a lot of work before he got there. He heard about it. And he's now ready for God to align, realign the pegs in the ground for him, to understand the difference between culture and Christianity. And so in verse 34, he says, I now realize, I didn't realize it before, but now I get it. I get it. And this is, in fact, the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. This is what you do when you become a Christian. You say, oh, I thought I understood life. Now I realize. But it's what you go on doing as a Christian, hopefully. Because you see, Peter, just because he's a Christian and he's a disciple of Jesus, doesn't mean that he knows everything about the gospel, that he has all wisdom and insight into every part of it. He has to realize something new here now. And that is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. That's Peter's blind spot. And the gospel was for all people without restriction, and he hadn't got that up until this point, even though Jesus had said it. Now, please note that what this is not saying is that God accepts everybody the way they are. God is content, God is not content for people to stay where they are. You know, in, in Cornelius's case, fearing God, giving generously, doing good, but grossly ignorant of the final piece of the puzzle, that is where Jesus fits in. No, it's critical that Peter's organised to get to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. Peter needed to instruct him about the unique place of Jesus in the story. And what does he say to him? Look at verse 36 onwards. It's interesting now because the word all keeps coming up. I mean, he's really understood this idea of no favoritism because he preaches to him and to the household, telling them the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Look down at verse 38. He went around doing good and healing all. They killed him, God raised him, verse 31, not seen by all, but by witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 42, Jesus commanded us to preach that he is the one God appointed judge of all. Verse 43, all the Old Testament prophets point to him that all who believe in him will receive forgiveness of sins. That's the heart of Christianity. It's not a system a moral system, it's not a religious activity, it's not becoming middle class or getting upwardly mobile. It's about believing in a person whom God has sent. It's simply a person. Jesus, Lord of all, judge of all, who becomes putrid, unclean, stained, filthy, hanged on a cross, cursed, ultimately to make you clean. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, can you see what that's saying to you? It's saying to you that you may have written off God, but he certainly hasn't written off you. He is Lord of all and he's judge of all. And if you're a Christian here today, everybody needs to discover or hear this at some point. Because he came for all, didn't he? 
We may write some people off. We may unconsciously apply selection procedures. We may assume that some people can be reached and others can't. But you've got to come to grips with this verse 34. I now realise that God does not show favouritism. We think the gospel will work on some people and not others and in certain situations and not other situations. Peter realises it's for everyone. It's for everyone. A few weeks ago, I was singing in church and I spontaneously started to tear up. It's not a comfortable thing to happen, actually. I mean, you're thinking, why, why is this happening to me? And I realised what triggered it was that in two seats in front of me, there was a man sitting there or standing there singing and who six years ago was brought to church on Christmas Day. And he'd been living on the street and he'd been captive to his addictions and he had recently become a Christian and he was introduced to me as the potential pastor. At that time, I was a minister at that church. And I have to say, my response to him was cautious. It was a little bit cynical, you know, because I'd seen a lot of people come to my congregation, a lot of blokes, and I just wondered how genuine the conversion was. I wondered whether he was going to exploit us. I wondered whether he was after the women, because we had so many of them in the congregation that I was taking. Now, I was watching this man in front of me six years later, and he was cuddling a six-year-old boy in one arm and his wife in the other. And the boy wasn't his, that was his stepson. And the woman, if you had heard her story as a single mum, with few resources and support, well, I mean, this, this, what overwhelmed me, I think, was two things. One, the transforming power of the gospel. And two, I think a bit of shame for how I had boxed him when I first met him six years before. So if God were to drop a sheet right now, who would he put in it for you? What people might he challenge you with? Maybe it's the strident LGBT advocate at work who's got it out for you, knows you're a Christian and wants everybody to know you're homophobic. Maybe it's the foul-mouthed, promiscuous party animal at uni. Maybe it's that man who lives next door to you, who's always outside on his Zimmer frame and always complaining and always, when you've got the least amount of time available, wanting to talk to you about his complaints. Maybe it's someone, a peer that you went through school with and uni and now they've just shot right ahead of you and they're successful and they fly everywhere and they've got everything they want and they seem to have no needs. What prejudices prevent you from sharing the gospel and spreading it? Because the truth is these people have no hope if the gospel is not spread beyond Jerusalem. But because of Acts 10, they can have hope. Most people chase hope. 
It's just that what they're settling for is a lot less than what God had in store for them in the gospel. And I was staring hope in the face of my brother to seats in front of me singing that morning. Here at Trinity Hills, you must have your blind spots. I don't know them. I'm a visitor. But you must have them, because we all do. Take a walk through your own towns and villages up here that you inhabit in the seat of Mayo and find out why people have chosen to live here like you. Do you know that I just did a little bit of Googling out of interest and you have one of the highest percentages of volunteerism for South Australia of any community. 25% of this community up here are involved in volunteer work. Well, I think that's fertile ground to meet people, isn't it? To begin that process of sharing the gospel by befriending people in something that you both enjoy together. Well, if we're not prepared to move beyond our safe territory, it will be the surest sign and surest denial of the power of the gospel. What people are absent from your prayer list? What people are absent from your diary over this next week? What people are absent from here? Who are in this community in droves? Who is on the sheet, on your sheet? Be honest with yourself. Because none of us have an empty sheet. Our own prejudices cause us to write some people off as too hard, too far gone, not worth it, not clean enough. But it's no accident where you live. It's no accident where you work, where you spend your time this week. God is setting up divine appointments like the appointment between Cornelius and Peter. He's doing it with you, with other Corneliuses. Messenger, hearer, constantly being brought together for divine appointments until Christ returns. That's how the gospel will get to the end of the earth. It's not by angels, sometimes. Not generally by visions, but by messengers and hearers. Which people are on your sheet? I'm pushing this. I want you to think about it during the week. I want you to go back and read this chapter. Because God is saying here, don't call anything impure that I have made clean. As a way of committing ourselves to that, why don't you stand with me now and say together with me, verse 34 and 30, 35, minus the little narration at the start. Verse 34 and 35, chapter 10, page 892. Stand with me together. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Let's pray while we're standing. Jesus, Lord of all, you healed all, you died for all, rose for all and will judge all. 
transform our view of humanity this week, root out our blind prejudices and give us humility to accept all people so that nothing may prevent the spread of your good news through our lives, through this church, through our city, our world. Amen.